Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Rishi Desai. About 50,000 medical students apply for residency programs each year, and each student applies to dozens of schools and gets scheduled for multiple interviews. So in other words, this is a big, complicated process. That's where Thalamus enters the picture, a leading platform that applicants and programs use to manage their interview process. Dr. Jason Remnick, its founder and CEO, is with us today to talk about how all of this works, how the recruitment process has been impacted by COVID, and what the future holds. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to, to start out by just learning a little bit more about you and what got you interested in medicine, and in particular, pediatric anesthesiology. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I wanted to be a doctor since I was 12. Fortunately or unfortunately, I had some relatives who had some health issues when I was younger, but just really found myself drawn to medicine. I had my own kind of interesting health issues along the way and really just really started to love pediatrics, found my way into medical school and there sort of my two key advisors in medical school, one of which is, is my co-founder for Thalamus. Her name is Dr. Susie Karen. She's an anesthesiologist. Her husband happens to be a pediatrician, and they always joke that they both guided me into pediatric anesthesiology. But no, I've really sort of found my way through med school, trying out all the various specialties. I thought I wanted to be an internal medicine cardiologist to start, and that kind of went out first day of third year very quickly. And then really loved my peds clerkship and loved anesthesia, and then found out I could put it together, and then really started developing a clinical interest in pediatric chronic pain, given how underserved the community is and just how many interesting medical conditions come out, such as like chronic regional pain syndrome, et cetera. So really found my niche there and that's where my clinical interests have always lied. And so you obviously went through this process that, you know, we just talked through about, you know, applying and, and finding your, your right program. What was it about that process that made you decide to start Thalamus? What problem were you trying to solve? Yeah, so I, I, I lived the problem firsthand, as, as did my co-founder on the program side. But when I was applying to residency in 2012, I got stuck in New York City during Hurricane Sandy, and several of my interviews were canceled, many of which required a lot of rescheduling, and some were never rescheduled. And I just still remember that next week being out at a program on Long Island, and one of the candidates paid $600 for a cab for the days of Uber to this program because they couldn't reschedule them. So he paid $600 because his car had literally floated away in the storm. And so I just remember the anxiety of everyone going through this process and the challenges in scheduling. And similarly on the program side, it's, it was, it's a big headache, it's anxiety ridden, it's, it's costly. And so we wanted to make it easier for all stakeholders, both applicants and programs. And so walk us through it. How does it work exactly? And if you come in to Thalmus, like what is that experience like for applicants from, and, and, and also from the program side, what, what is it that they see now, which didn't really exist before? Yeah, in terms of the way the products used, it's probably easiest to start on the program side, but it integrates with the common application systems that everyone's using. So Eris, SF Match, other application systems for fellowships as well. The programs can pull the applicant data over in various ways and invite the candidates to interview. They can also use various algorithms we have to invite certain candidates to certain days given the complexities of scheduling. And the applicants then, once they're invited, get a link to create a profile that takes less than 10 seconds. And once they do that, that's their Thalamus account. And then they have a calendar linked to that account that shows them any program that invites them in Thalamus in real time. So for the applicants, they can any program that invites them through Thalamus shows up on one centralized calendar so they can compare when they're 
going to different interview days across the country, focus on particular regions, et cetera. And then they can sign up in real time, kind of like open table, but instead of booking a restaurant, they're booking a residency interview. Back on the program side, it allows them to score candidates, write notes, build face sheets, and eventually build their rank lists for the match. And then with COVID, we added several virtual interview capabilities. We integrate with Zoom Teams and WebEx. We also have our own homegrown video interviewing solution. We have an itinerary builder that builds schedules and itineraries for applicants and programs and saves a ton of time there. And also various tools to help with holistic review for programs as well. And so uh, that's kind of been Thalamus as it exists today. You know, it's interesting, you, you liken it to OpenTable, you know, and that, that often happens when people say there's this complex process, we've created a solution, and you can either talk through it or you say, hey, there's this analog that yeah. will help you kind of quickly get it, right? Yeah. What is your sense of expectations now? I mean, people, when booking a restaurant, expect that process to be easy. When people yeah. go in to do a residency match, they expect it to be hard. And now you're kind of telling them, no, it doesn't have to be that hard. How have people responded to that change in expectations? I think overall they've responded very well, but expectations definitely have changed. When I interviewed and scheduled interviews, you had to do everything by phone and you had to race to your email to write a very professional email back quickly, trying to secure your top three choices for dates. And then two weeks later, you get an email back saying, sorry, those dates were filled. Please pick three more. And so there was less transparency then. Now with the interview scheduling, when someone jumps on a software and they see spots are available or spots aren't available, that just leads to, you know, some more anxiety and frustration. And I think over time with medical students being as type A as we all are in medical school, and certainly understandably, there's been a race to acquire and secure more spots. And this race has existed even prior to this, but I think it's just become more transparent. And I think it's fueled this continued race to these spots. And I think we are consistently trying to figure out ways to slow that down. We've met with many specialty organizations and think that a tiered approach to invites and actually based on the data we've, we've looked at actually slows down the invites and results in applicants getting better spots that they more strongly prefer and less cancellations and such. But really, yes, how do you design that experience for the applicants now being more reliant on their phones and mobile and just being busy on clinical rotations and otherwise and really design that nice user experience so that we can make it as pleasant as possible for a process that overall has not been, no one would rank it on the most pleasant things they do list for sure. So also on that list is COVID. And, you know, with COVID, you had a lot less in-person interviewing, and now things are winding down in many parts of the country. How has that affected the interview process? Like, what are you noticing about how people are conducting interviews at this point? Yeah, it's a great question. And really, as GME did with the rest of the healthcare system, adapted very, very quickly to sort of the new normal. And everyone shifted from a historically very sacred in-person interview to virtual very quickly. And so, programs were finding out new ways to do this. How do they run their recruitment season? How do they get their faculty bought into this new virtual recruitment? And of course, everyone had to do it because there was no way to travel around the country. So programs had done a lot to take their online day and make it virtual, meet and greets, open houses, even with tours. I know several programs were sticking GoPros on their residents' heads and having them walk around the hospital and kind of a day in the life kind of videos or working with their marketing departments. And I think the, the key for the programs was trying to figure out how do we recruit applicants to our hospital without them ever stepping foot in the building? And then similarly for the applicants, how do I learn where I'm going to spend, depending on what specialty you go into, the next three to seven years of my life in a place that I haven't stepped foot in? I think on the whole, everyone adapted quite well. The match outcomes really didn't change. We saw on the whole 
more applicants interviewing at more programs and more programs completing more interviews than they had in years past. But I think the big key piece was that everyone saw was that it really helped in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusivity in this process, just from the cost savings alone to both applicants and programs. And so, you know, I think where we head in the future is still up for discussion, but I think at least from a cost perspective, it was much better. Really, the only thing you can't replicate right now online is being in the hospital. But the question is, how much does that necessarily affect people's decisions? And I think that's where we figure out going forward. Do you have any personal experience that stands out for you when you think about your own journey through all of this and, and maybe a moment where you're like, oh gosh, I can't believe that this is the way it is? Yeah, I think it's every step of the process really. And I, I just remember going into medicine, my parents who were not in medicine keep asking me like, this is the process? Like who would want to do this? And so I think really that first moment of just someone's car had floated away and couldn't get their interview rescheduled really stood with me. I know there's been a lot of applicants who've had to have family members involved to help them manage this process or, or surrogates sort of watching their calendars. And I think those creates other challenges also. And then similarly, in some of the ways a lot of programs interview, they're interviewing a lot of candidates very, very quickly. And you just take a step back and you go, well, how does one truly assess a medical student if an interview is in some cases 10 or only 10 or 15 minutes long? And so I think those are some of the challenges that still persist. I know you've called on programs to implement more holistic reviews of applications. Do you mind just walking us through kind of what that means and what response you've gotten? Yeah, I, I think overall it's a bigger push throughout all of GME, which I'm excited about. But historically, a lot of decisions were made via filtering, mostly on step one scores, sometimes step two or strength of medical school and such. And a lot of programs were in a way to try and manage the hundreds to thousands of applications they may receive, get them down to a a more reviewable group. And all of the data has shown that step one is not a great predictor of who's going to succeed in residency or succeed in medicine. And of course, step one just went past fail. So now the question is what happens with step two and, and beyond. But really, I think holistic review is looking at every part of an applicant. We had a forum recently looking at DEI recruitment in GME. And one of the really interesting topics that came up was this idea of distance traveled and resiliency. And that means different things for different programs and different applicants, of course, but kind of look at the information in the application, figure out what you need, find that data quickly. Some of the tools we've built in, in our software helps with that. But that allows and frees up the program directors and the program leadership to really look into between the lines of the application. Who is this person? What are they going to be on call at two o'clock in the morning or when a resident calls out sick or something else or COVID hits? What is that going to look like for our program? And I think more and more programs and specialties are making a commitment to that as well. And in the long run, I think that definitely helps medicine, not only in helping place people in the right residency programs, but even further down the line to affecting patient care and ensuring that the right doctors are in, in the right places within this country. That makes sense. And it kind of brings up a question I'm always curious about is, well, how does this translate to other countries? Like what do you have in terms of footprint in other places? And is this process very different or, or similar around the world? Yeah, it, we have a, definitely have a unique process in the United States. Canada, for instance, it's, it's not as competitive. They tend to get more together in regional places. It just doesn't have the same challenges that exist here. We've actually found similar processes 
outside of medicine within the United States, law being one of them. And we've worked with some law firms to recruit students out of law school. It's a nearly identical process. They're just, there is no match. And the firms usually pay for all of the costs versus the applicants in medicine. And similarly, dentistry, pharmacy, uh, other health professions too. And we work with some customers on that side as well. I guess one thing that of course comes up a lot is students that go through this process are always wondering, you know, that's an interesting thing that you've done as an entrepreneur starting a business. You know, it's very different from kind of the, the normal pathway. What advice do you have for folks that may be interested in, in starting a company or a business and how maybe did you get started and what mentors did you have along the way? It's a topic I'm really passionate about. I think physicians should really be involved in innovation. Obviously, I'm preaching a little to the choir here as well, given who I'm talking to. But I do think there's a real benefit. And physicians, starting from the time you're in medical school or even before that and going forward into residency and fellowship and beyond, we have just a, such a unique perspective and skill set that can be transferable to so many different and unique ideas that really we only see, right? Like, I don't start thalamus if I don't apply to residency and get stuck in New York City during Hurricane Sandy. And no one else is coming in who's not a physician probably to fix this process in one way or another, one of the organizations that's part of this process. So it's really about finding your passion and then finding those mentors. Yeah, I've been lucky in that my mentor in medical school co-founded this organization with me, but along the way, we found other physicians who are entrepreneurially minded to provide guidance and feedback. And I took a more unique path in that I'm not practicing clinically right now and, and made the decision to step away from clinical practice in the sense that I was something I'm really passionate about and a problem that I think really affects healthcare and figuring out what does that transition look like and what does that future look like? And I, it's, a, it's a decision that I weighed very heavily, but one I've really never looked back on and, and know I made the right choice. So when you get that question from students, do you feel like a lot of them have mentors in place or do you feel like that mentorship in general is, is still lacking in 2022, that entrepreneurial mentorship? I do think it's still lacking to an extent. I think there's a long established belief in medicine that to be a great doctor, you have to be 100% committed clinically. And I think that is the right mindset for some people and for others, there's more of a balance. And I think there's a lot that can be implemented in terms of medicine and how you lead your career that may not be 100% clinical. And I think medicine's gotten to a point where we'll at least accept, well, if you're developing a pharmaceutical or a medical device or doing bench research, that that's an alternative path that one could take. And still a little bit more to the one extreme of the bell curve is this idea of starting a company or, or starting a product or building an idea and innovation. And I think it's supported in certain areas and certain geographies and certain groups. But on the whole, I'd love to see it become more mainstream because, yeah, I talked to a lot of medical schools and a lot of medical students. I just talked to a group of medical students in a curriculum they have for innovation and gave a lecture there. And a lot of them just really wanted advice as to how they could find resources to grow ideas or who do they turn to or who can they discuss it with as they continue their medical career, you know, whether or not they want to be fully devoted to being a clinical physician or because they want to devote their life to clinical medicine, how do they create something then pass it off to someone? So I think there are a lot of different permutations depending on the individual, but yeah, the more help we can provide medical students and others, residents, fellows in, in learning how to do this, the, I think the better off healthcare in the country and in the world will be. So, you know, we're a teaching company. We love to fill knowledge gaps. Is there any topic that you'd like to educate us on that you think everyone ought to know at this point? Yeah, I think there's a really big topic going on in this GME recruitment process right now that a lot of people are mentioning called interview hoarding. And the concern is that 
the majority of the interviews are going to candidates who are at sort of the top recruitment statistics considered you know the most sought after applicants via whatever metric you want to measure that and I think it's caused a lot of anxiety throughout the process and for applicants in general and concerns people matching and not matching and we've looked into this really heavily we don't love interview hoarding as a term in the sense that it does create this idea of people gathering all of these interviews and keeping them away from others. And so we've taken a lot of steps on the data side to dive into the data of the interview process. We've looked across every single specialty. We've looked across various recruitment seasons, pre-COVID, post-COVID, in-person, virtual, et cetera. And we have never been able to find any evidence, at least in the way that seems to be generally defined, that a small percentage of applicants, say the top five, top 10% of applicants have the majority of interviews. And I know there's been some research done kind of looking at sort of a top percentage of candidates having a certain percentage of interviews, but that's more just the way the math works out in terms of the distribution. And so every curve we've ever looked at is as the numbers get very high, the proportion of any applicant pool that has that mix of interviews is very low. Of course, we only have a certain percentage of the overall recruitment market at this time, but it's a large enough percentage that we feel our sample is very representative. And what it shows is that the small minority of candidates do not have the majority of interviews. There are candidates, of course, who are interviewing at 30, 40, 50 places, but that is a very small percentage. And so for the applicants, I know that you see on social media or otherwise that certain candidates have a large number of interviews. I would encourage everyone to try and know that, yes, there are people who interview at many, many places, but at the same time, the majority of the market is not that way. And taking it a step further, we've actually done some research and, and looking at the amount of over-interviewing that actually happens. And we know that in primary care and other specialties that you can cut out of low likelihood to succeed in a match interviews, you cut out 15, 20, up to, up to about 35% of interviews and final match lists would still say exactly as they are. So I know this process is very high stakes. I know everyone's looking to optimize the amount of interviews that they have. There's a lot, a lot of interviews right now and they aren't being hoarded. Rather, I think the bigger problem is that there's a transparency issue for the programs given the amount of applications that are out there trying to figure out who's coming to their program. And we're working on tools to help with that and otherwise too. But it's definitely not an interview hoarding problem. It's There's a lot, a lot of applications which are kind of watering down who's going to end up where and making it difficult for both programs and applicants to signal as to where they want to be and who they want. That's remarkable. I, I think that that makes a lot of sense and especially messaging about that because I've, I've heard that phrase and misinterpreted that phrase myself. And so that's great that you shared that. Well, maybe that's a good place to kind of catch your, your last bit of advice. You know, we have a lot of folks that are listening, interested in kind of your journey. What, what advice do you have for healthcare persons that are kind of going through this process or maybe have just kind of signed up and, and maybe going through this process down the road? Yeah, I think it was good advice that I got very early on in medical school. It was take everything one day at a time and then try not to buy into others' anxiety and just kind of find your own path. And, you know, curriculums are very structured. Residency programs and accreditation processes are very structured. You're going to get a good clinical education wherever you want to go. It's just a matter of who do you want to be as a clinician? Who do you want to be as a person? And finding that path that's right for you and I found it, that advice has worked every step of the way throughout medicine for me, and now even in running thalamus, and I would pass that off to really any learner looking to get into this space at whatever level they're at. 
Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think that's a great spot to maybe end this interview. I appreciate you taking the time to, to join us today, Dr. Remnick. No, thank you for having me. I'm Risha Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>